coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 11th of February, 2024, taking his lead. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of James. We're continuing our investigation on how a believer deals with trials in their life. Let me read these few short verses, beginning at verse 2 of chapter 1, and uh, try and bring you up to speed and then into the topic for today. James, we know, was the brother of Jesus, and he's now writing to the 12 tribes, basically Jewish believers spread through the Roman world. And he begins right almost immediately talking about this topic. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We talked about how a person could count it joy when they encountered trials. We all acknowledge that no one enjoys trials. That's, that's a pretty easy conclusion to come to. It says, how in the world can you have joy then? And we said that it must be that the counting part is factoring in all the factors. And it's not just the trial that we have, but we have resources in the living God. And the fact that he oversees the process and the fact that we can go to him then gives us the ability to have joy. And we said joy is happiness that's centered not on circumstances, but on Jesus. So we come to this segment here in verse 5 and following, and how to deal with a trial when you don't know how to deal with a trial. And James gives us some pointers here. We talked about the purpose of a trial, as he said here, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, that you may come to the place where you are, are mature in Christ, trusting in Jesus, and your go-to response when faced with trials is to say, Lord, how do I handle this? It isn't, oh no, what have I stumbled into? 
But Lord, I stumbled into something. Show me how I'm supposed to deal with it. That should be our go-to response. They say, well, what if I don't know what to do? He even speaks to that. And that's the subject of our, of our time together this morning. Verse 5, and it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The idea, I like in the King James, and upbraideth not. <laughs> it braideth not. And our first point today is that we are given a path to an intimate relationship with God, lacking nothing then. We're given a path to an intimate relationship with God. How many have ever, you don't have to raise your hand, have ever desired to be closer to the Lord? And maybe you've heard a testimony or something and you go, man, I wish that I was as close to the Lord as that person is. Or I really, I really don't feel all that close. I wish there was something that I could do to get closer. And a lot of times we, we head in the wrong direction. We think in terms of maybe if I just had more quiet time. You know, maybe a, a nice fire in the fireplace in the wintertime, in a comfy chair, in an open Bible, in a time to just read and meditate and pray. Wouldn't that be great? Oh yeah, I would. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You said, but you know, where intimacy with Christ is really strengthened is in the trenches. It's really strengthened when it isn't, it isn't just us discussing how we ought to live, but we actually take those truths and put them in, in our life and put them to work. Amen. He said, no believer then wants distance between themselves. We all want to be close, but the bond is forged in the laboring, not in the comfort. The comfort is great. I mean, there's nothing that encourages as much as maybe getting together with other believers and singing and in the process. Um, you just, I don't say lose yourself, but you just, you're thinking on the words and you're thinking on the song and you're singing those songs and you go, wow, this is, this is so good. I've told you on occasion that I have an opportunity to go down to the Shepherds Conference, which is a conference primarily for pastors and leaders at John MacArthur's church. And I said, of all the things that go on there, there's nothing quite like being in an auditorium with about 4,000 guys. And we all join together in song. You know what's nice about that? you don't even have to be in tune. 
And you can just throw back and, and let it fly out of your heart and, and let it soar. And there's enough good singers out there to cover for you. And you, you sing some of these songs and you just go, yes, yes. But you know, that isn't where intimacy is built. Intimacy is built in the struggles when we wrestle with truth and we incorporate it into our lives. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, he raises a topic that, you know, we just assume that he left out, but he talks about it. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Nobody loves a tax collector. They don't love them then, they don't love them now. And he said, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. If you avoid conflict all the time, and you avoid those that have conflict with you all the time, and you just skirt through your life and don't touch on all of these issues, he says, that's what the Gentiles can do. What about you? He says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And what he means by that is the same word that we saw back in verse 4 of uh, James 1. He says, steadfastness, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And when he was speaking, Jesus was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know what the coursework is? Love your enemies. See how that works for you. And we go, no, I don't want that. And he goes, there you will test whether you really have arrived yet. Have you come to the place of completeness? Have you come to the place of perfection? And we said perfection there isn't really the idea without sinlessness. What he's talking about there is you've come to a place of maturity. Have you figured it out yet? You're no longer handling it like a little kid. You know, if you don't, if 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 you don't do what I say, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. That's how a kid would handle that. You say, no. Can you deal with someone that rubs you the wrong way and deal with it in a mature way? He says, the only way you're going to get to maturity is to take the course. We're given a path to intimate relationship with God, lacking nothing, and the way that we do it is go through the trials and 
come through it the other way, the other side. He says, but what if, what if I really don't know how quite to respond? That's the subject of this segment. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And we come to the second point then. God graciously supplies the wisdom to deal with the trials that we face. He graciously gives us the wisdom to deal with the trials that we face. We say, I don't know how to do this. I'm not sure how I should respond. Lord, would you help me? The answer is absolutely, absolutely. James later on in, in this book writes in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, For where is wisdom and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. In other words, jealousy has no place in the wisdom of God. Selfish ambition, ambition has no place in the wisdom of God. The world can answer that way. It can deal in jealousy. It can deal in selfish ambition. It can say, me first, me first. And I don't like the fact that you got something that I didn't get. He goes on from there and he says, but wisdom, and this is what we're asking God for, wisdom from above is first pure, and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, if you want a verse to meditate on this week, I would encourage you to meditate on verse 17 of chapter 3. If we want the wisdom that God is going to give us, we'll be able to identify it by its fruit. Its fruit is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. May I say something that might make you uncomfortable? If that's not your response, that's not God's wisdom. If you're doing the opposite, if your things that you're dealing with is impure, if it's causing a rumpus, if it's not gentle at all but strident, if you can't respond to good reason, if you're unmerciful, if you're partial, not impartial, and if you're unsincere or insincere, that didn't come from God. So all I have to do is take a test, check out how you're responding. Did this come from God or not? Because God's gift of wisdom is going to manifest itself this way. And unfortunately, what our first thoughts 
often take us is not God's way at all. Very familiar passage found in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Your understanding will probably take you the wrong way. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Don't be wise in your own eyes. How do we acknowledge him then? Say, God, if I'm going to deal with this particular issue that I'm faced with, I want to respond the way you want me to respond, not the way I'm inclined to respond. He goes on in this passage here in James, the first chapter, and he says, let him ask God for this wisdom. We talked about the nature of the wisdom was these qualities but he says, we must ask for it. It doesn't come automatically. And so prayer is essential to show our dependence on him. I love the fact that Paul, when he was praying for the church at Colossae, he was concerned about their spiritual growth. And he says this in verse 9. So from the day that we heard of your salvation, your walk with the Lord, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says, you know what? Not only are we supposed to pray for ourselves and how to face a particular task, but we can pray for others. Have you ever gone through something and saw someone else now going through the same kind of thing and you want to go, no, no, don't go that way. <laughs> it may have been by experience. You went down that road and you don't want them to go down that road. Paul says, let's be praying for one another so that our first response when faced with trials is to turn to the Lord and and ask, ask for help, ask for help. And what does scripture say? And I love this part. And he says, let him ask of a God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Generously lavished upon us. God says, you want some wisdom? I've got a thimble full I can give you. No. He says, i got a bucket. Boosh. He says, why? Because we need all the wisdom we can get. And he says, I'm going to give generously. And do you know what? God says, I'm not going to rebuke you at all. You know what God never says to us? Oh, how many problems are you going to go through and you're coming back around again asking for help again? 
never does that. He says, you came and asked for help. I've got it. His, I've got a ton of it, and I'm going to give it to you. Why? Because you asked for it, and I had it for you, and here it is. We're familiar with that passage in Jeremiah 29. Some of you might even have it memorized, maybe not in this translation. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and, for, and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and, and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And here James says, and when we ask, he gives generously. Generously. But there's a little caveat here too. And this is our third point. We must ask in faith because doubting short circuits God's provision. Here's what the text says. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose they will receive anything from the Lord he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, maybe I should do this. Or maybe that. And God says, this is the way to go. And you go, I don't know. This sounds like a viable alternative. And the Lord goes, no, if I show you what to do, if I show you the direction to go, at that point, go that way. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't vacillate between one thing or the other. And it's interesting to me that the writer of this book is James. Remember how we started out this study in James, and we talked about the nature of who James was. I want you to go back with me back to Mark chapter 6. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And Jesus, we find Jesus now in Nazareth, his hometown. Maybe you'll remember this from about a month ago or so when we were talking about it. And James experienced this. And so when he's writing this little epistle that we're studying today, he had been through this experience. James, now uh, we find in this passage in Mark chapter 6. And he says, and he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. This is Jesus now with his disciples. And he's in Nazareth, his hometown. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? Where do you think he got it? Oh, okay, well, he's God. Yeah, he should, he should know. And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. What was going on? They had before them the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, right in their midst. And he's speaking to them, and they are listening to him, and all they could see of him was that boy that grew up in town. All they could see was that brother of James. And now he's God somehow? He's, no, he's just my older brother. And they struggled with what was revealed to them, and they were vacillating back and forth. Can this really be a miracle worker? Could this be the Messiah? No, no, he's just... He's, He's just Joseph's son. No, but he does miracles. But no, we used to play with him. He, he learned right here in this, this synagogue. No, no, he claims to be God. No, no, he couldn't be that. Going back and forth, back and forth. And we see that at this point in history, James was among them because Jesus said, could do, and a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. His brothers and sisters were struggling. What am I to believe? What am I, how am I supposed to respond? And they vacillated back and forth. And listen to what it says here. Remember the passage in James. He says, if we go back there, he says, the man must not suppose that he will receive anything from God if he asks doubting. He is a double-minded man, a hesitant man, the idea, unstable or vacillating in all of his ways. That's how James describes him. And listen to what Jesus said was going on there in Nazareth. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He said, you keep flip-flopping here. You say on the one hand, maybe he's gone. He's doing miracles. But no, he's just the son of Joseph on the other what are we to believe? And they go back and forth. And he goes, you know what? He could do no miracles because of their unbelief. Does that mean that Jesus was hindered from doing miracles? No. What it means was they would have been useless to do. Because he saw where their heart was. 
It was continuing to vacillate, going back and forth, back and forth. And so he says, what value would it be if I did a miracle on her? And in fact, he did do some miracles. A few sick people were healed. But then he went on to other villages and went about teaching. I'd like for you to go with me to the Old Testament real quick. We'll look at a couple other examples. And the first one is found in Joshua chapter 24, the end of the book of, of Joshua before we get to Judges. What has gone on in, in the book of Joshua is Joshua had taken over for Moses and had led the people across uh, the Jordan River in flood season. Then they'd gone in and they had started conquering the land, taking place after place and seeing God's hand at work. And now it came to the end of, of Joshua's life and he speaks to the people. And in verse 14 of chapter 24, he says, And now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Not insincerity and unfaithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, which is sort of a nice little dig because he says, remember this used to be their land, but you're now dwelling there. And if you want to believe their gods, which didn't protect them, but I beat them. He says, if you want to do that, go ahead. And then Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's no equivocation here. There's no doubting. There's no, well, well, maybe. And remember who Joshua is. Joshua is one of the two spies that went in at the time when Moses sent in the spies into the land some 40 plus years before. And they went in, scoured the, the countryside, came back, and 10 of the spies came back and go, whoa, it's a, it's a wonderful land, lots of good produce and things. He says, but there's giants, we don't want to go there. Remember what Joshua and Caleb said? Yeah, yeah, there's giants, but you know what? Our God is bigger. Let's go and take it. And what happened to those that doubted and got all the other people to vacillate? Did they get what they wanted? Did they get to go into the land? Did they get to enjoy what God had promised to them? No. He said they all died in the wilderness. Who got to go into the land? Joshua, Caleb. <coughs> Joshua now says to the people, you can, you can believe in the gods here that were here when we came. But for me and my house, we're going to trust the Lord. My last illustration is found in 1 Kings 
18, and Tom already read this for us in our scripture reading this morning. I just want to pull up two verses here. Verse 18, chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. When Ahab had gathered all the people together and the prophets at Mount Carmel, Elijah came near the people and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? James put it this way. And a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And do you think that God will give him what he needs? No. Why? Why would God withhold what a man who is vacillating, why would he withhold something from him? He says, because what good is it if he takes it, looks at it, and discards it? He says, if God, if you need wisdom to face a trial, and God gives you wisdom, and it's peaceable, and all these other qualities that we already mentioned, if it is that, then seize it and go with it. God gives it to you graciously and gives it to you abundantly, but what he wants you to do with it is to use it. Not to just, well, that looks like an interesting offering. Maybe, how about here? What else? No. God shows you where to go, way to go. But that's the way to go. Maybe you're faced with a trial right now. Maybe you've been vacillating, wondering which, which way should I go? What direction should I take? How do I handle this? Have you gone to the Lord and go with a mindset that says, I'm going to ask the Lord for wisdom? Whatever he shows me, I'm going to do. And then see what happens. God says, I'm going to give you wisdom, give it abundantly. And if you go through a trial successfully, you come out closer to me, greater intimacy, greater maturity. Ask me, I'll give it to you. Heavenly Father, we come to you because our inclination is elsewhere and a different way rather than coming to you in faith believing, taking you at what you show us to do and running with it. Heavenly Father, forgive us of the times when we vacillated even after you've shown us May we be people who quickly go to you in prayer. May we be people that when we ask and you graciously give it to us, may we don't doubt, but rather take what you have revealed, put it into practice, and come through the trial as you intended. And our intimacy with you will be expanded. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.